Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. On the west side of Manhattan, Riverside Park winds between the banks of the Hudson River and the elegant housing of Riverside Drive. In her new book, Heaven on the Hudson, Mansions, Monuments, and Marvels of Riverside Park, Stephanie Azaron seeks to lift the park and its surroundings from the shadows of more famous places like Fifth Avenue, Central Park, and Central Park West. I'm Rob Snyder, Manhattan Borough Historian and Professor Emeritus at Rutgers University. I'm talking with Stephanie for the New Books Network and the Gotham Center for New York City History. Writing as a longtime resident and local historian who loves the park and the drive, Stephanie delivers a history of Riverside Park and Riverside Drive, followed by a short tour of both. Her chapters are accompanied by historical illustrations, contemporary photographs by Robert F. Rodriguez, and a glossary that helps readers new to architecture make sense of architectural terms. The book is at once detailed and passionate. Welcome, Stephanie. Thank you, Rob. Delighted to be here. For listeners who aren't familiar with Manhattan, could you describe the geography of the park and the drive? Yes, it runs from 72nd Street, well, the park itself, I should say, runs from 72nd Street. The original park ends at 129th Street and at, at uh, over time was extended up to 155th Street. Riverside Drive parallels the park from 72nd Street, but goes all the way up to Dykeman Street. And over time, the park was actually extended south as well to 60. Street. So why do you think Riverside Park and Riverside Drive are less famous than places like Fifth Avenue and Central Park? Well, so much has been written about Fifth Avenue and Central Park over time. And really, there have been only bits and pieces about Riverside Park. Um, So it's really been a secret. And now I'm hoping to share all the great news about Riverside Park and Riverside Drive with readers. That's great. How did you become fascinated by this stretch of Manhattan? Well, I've lived here for many years, and I fell in love with the neighborhood from early on. I loved walking up and down the streets and staring at the beautiful buildings and strolling through Riverside Park and enjoying nature and the view of the Hudson. And I, because I lived here, I really wanted to learn more about the neighborhood. And when I started researching it, I was really very disappointed because there was not much to be found. Um, so I decided that 
since I had some journalism background and figured that I could at least string a few grammatical sentences together, um, that, that I would try to write a book. And that's how Heaven on the Hudson came to be. That's great. Now, your history goes back to the times preceding the park and the drive, and I was fascinated by some of the things I learned. I first knew the name Delancey from a street on the Lower East Side, and to me, the name Apthorpe comes from a building on the Upper West Side. But you look at the prehistory of Riverside Park and learn that the Delanceys and Apthorpe share a history. Tell us about that. Oh, well, the the Delanceys and the Livingstons and the Apthorpes uh, all lived in the area prior to the conception and development of Riverside Drive. They were here in the early 1700s. Um, The the whole progress of the the drive has been interesting. uh, The book actually looks at it from way back um, at the time of the Native American Lenape and then looks at the Dutch and then the English and the the massive land grants that were given, 150 acres or more, uh, in order to uh, have the Europeans populate the area. Um, and early on, those areas were populated by uh, farms. And then over time, uh, from the mid-1750s to roughly the early to mid-1850s, um, there were country estates. Uh, and these were the kinds of homes that belonged to the Apthorps and the Livingstons and the Delanceys. And it was after that, uh, the mid-1850s or so, that people started, and just started, I repeat, to uh, build permanent homes in the area. And then, of course, once the park itself and the drive opened, then uh, these were no longer, uh, no one was building country homes, um, but what were they were building homes that uh, were going to be their permanent residences. Yeah, I was struck by the story of the Delanceys and the Apthorpes in the years of the American Revolution, because it made the revolution much more tumultuous for me in in the retelling of their experiences. Could you share that with our listeners? Yes. Uh, So the Delancey story was particularly interesting to me. Um, Delancey was a devoted loyalist, and he even led a contingent uh, of soldiers that um, opposed the uh, American rebels. Um, And um, he uh, made a number of enemies over time, including the rebels who at one point uh, invaded his home. He was not home at the time. Just the women of the house were home, and they managed to escape, although the the uh, rebels really tossed the house. Um, and uh, he also married uh, a woman who was uh, a member of a very prominent Jewish family. Um, she did not tell her family about this marriage for many months, and her mother apparently never spoke to her again as a result. And one other interesting uh, story about Delancey, he <laughs> he killed a man in a drunken duel. Um, so whereas the Delanceys had lived on the land for some time, they had been well-established um, since colonial times, Oliver was not one of the uh, most appealing members of this long-established family. And the Apthorps, to address your question about the Apthorps, so they had lived there from some uh, for some time as well. Uh, they were basically down the road from the Delanceys um, and the Livingstons. Uh, and I mentioned the Livingstons here because the Delanceys and the Livingstons were enemies, <laughs> even though they lived down the road from each other. Um, the Apthorps had one home there, and then uh, when the original Apthorpe died, he basically bequeathed the land to 10 of his children, and 
and uh, then they build another home. Um, so they have been there for quite some time. And actually, when the Delancey women, oh, I'm sorry, I was going to say this was the Epthorps. Yes, that's, I'm sorry, I'm correcting myself here. When the Delancey women escaped the rebel invaders, they made their way to the Apthorpe home for safety. Boy, boy. So now we're in the middle of the 19th century. How did the the drive begin to assume its present form? Ah, all right. Well, um, the idea was to make Riverside Drive and Riverside Park the new Fifth Avenue and new Central Park. The idea was that all the wealthy, the Vanderbilts, the Astors, and the rest, who lived on Fifth Avenue, would make their way over to the west side of town. And the reason uh, the creators of this uh, idea thought that would happen was because Riverside area is up on the cliffs. Um, It has this fabulous view of the Hudson River. It has a wonderful view of the Palisades. It was untouched. It was beautiful. Um, And so it made sense to the developers. Um, Needless to say, this never really happened. The folks who lived on Fifth Avenue um, wanted to to stay with their own kind. They had no motivation to move over to the west coast of town. They had all their shops locally. It was easy for the wives to uh, to do their shopping. Uh, it was easy for the women to leave their cards at their friends' home homes. There was no reason to traipse all the way across town and then uptown. Uh, it simply served no purpose for them. Even the grand view of the Hudson River was not necessary for them because they had their homes in Newport and elsewhere where they had a great view of the sea. Um, So that idea did not quite work, although there were some very wealthy who came, but most of the folks who came were upper middle class. They were lawyers, they were doctors, uh, they were entrepreneurs, and these are the folks who really uh, populated Riverside Park and Riverside Drive. Who and what were displaced to create Riverside Park? I saw some photos of rude housing, things like that. Mm -hmm. Yes, yes. Um, So after Central Park was created, a number of folks who... Um, were in shacks there, moved over to the west side. So there are a number of dispossessed who were living in Riverside Park for some time, both in the 1800s and then later on, of course, um, after the uh, 1929 crash. So how did Riverside Drive go from being the home of single-family mansions to the home of multifamily apartment buildings? Because this is one of the big shifts in city living. Yes, it definitely was, and it took some time. Um, but basically, land values kept going up and up. Um, nothing new for New York City. But both homeowners and developers discovered that uh, it was more beneficial to them to um, be in an apartment house, to build an apartment house, to use the land for an apartment house that housed many people uh, than just one person or one family. 
and because it was so expensive. Um, and the so that was the benefit for the developers, for the homeowners. Um, basically, they got more for their money is what it came down to. The apartment buildings at the time offered services that made their lives easier. They really no longer had to pay someone to do the laundry because the apartment house staff would do that. Uh, often the apartment houses would often have um, uh, restaurants. Um, they would send up food to, if the people who lived there did not want to come down to the restaurant, they would actually send up food. So it was an early form of takeout and delivery, which obviously New Yorkers can't live without. Um, (laughs) So that is one, or I should say the key reasons that Riverside Drive evolved from one family homes, villas, and townhouses, row houses to apartment buildings, and later, of course, co-ops. So when the apartment buildings are built there, who moves in? And how do they compare to the folks in the mansions who preceded them? Well, this was also actually what I would term the upper middle class. Um, same categories of people, the the lawyers and the doctors uh, and the entrepreneurs. Uh, these were the same folks who moved into the apartment buildings um, over time. And later on, it was um, uh, families who were seeking a less expensive place to live uh, than other parts of town. Uh, There were benefits such as great access to transportation, of course, access to the parks. You were in the middle between Riverside Park and Central Park. It was just a a great place to be and lots of very big apartments to live in. Was apartment housing on Riverside Drive ever racially segregated? (sighs) I have to think about that question. (laughs) And way north in the 150s, he said in his correspondence, you know, the buildings here are beginning to open up, right? But that's way north of the area we're talking about. Yeah, well, that is actually, um, Rob, I only focused on the main, or I should say the original area up to 129th. So I really can't address above that, to be honest. Sure. Well, you, one of the things that you do focus on, which was fascinating to me, is the story of Robert Moses in Riverside Park. Yes, the man. <laughs> yes. <laughs> He's often portrayed as a power-mad master builder um, who tries to make New York City safe for automobiles. But you have a more subtle picture of him. Tell us about that. Yes, Robert Moses, the man everybody loves to hate. Uh, and for good reasons, in many cases, he was very arrogant. He believed that only he knew the right way to do things. Nothing was going to stand in his way, neither money nor mayors or anybody else. Um, however, he actually did a number of very good things for Riverside Park and Riverside Drive. You have to kind of look back to the beginning. The The park itself, of course, was designed originally by Frederick Law Olmsted. Um, and it was a, a beautiful park. But one of the key differences between what Olmsted designed and what Moses did many years later was the fact that Olmsted's park ended, ended at the railroad tracks. So... Back in 1914, um, there was an interesting story about Moses, and this this was from the power broker, um, Moses being on a a ferry and looking back at Riverside Park, which by that time was a bit of a mess. It had gone through its great days, but it also had a landfill way back when, and that landfill became very muddy. And the park, after its glory days in the 20s or so, started to go a bit downhill. 
So Moses looked at it and he had spent a lot of time on the West side. He lived part of his life on the West side and he looked at it and said, and I'm paraphrasing here, the, <laughs> the exact quote is in the book, but he basically said, imagine how beautiful this could be. This could be the most beautiful park and, and uh, shorefront um, in the world. And it wasn't until 20 years later when he became parks commissioner that he was actually able to do something about this. So yes, he did create a parkway, the Henry Hudson Parkway, but he also totally revamped the park, which at that point really needed it. And the key thing that he did was to cover the tracks. And this, plus the fact that he created a massive rotunda and he created a marina, all of this gave people much greater access to Riverside Park than they had before. Uh, prior to that, they had to <laughs> dash across the tracks or they could only access uh, the riverfront over bridges, small bridges that were built for the yacht clubs. There were a few yacht clubs along the way there. Uh, so it was not the kind of accessible waterfront that it is today. And Moses really made that happen. He also introduced athletic fields, lots and lots of athletic fields. There were about 50 different sports areas in the park today. He also introduced playgrounds. There was just one playground, I think, in the entire time before that. Um, so it really became a much more wonderful place to be. And it, it puts the park in the middle of a transformation of outdoor recreation from contemplating nature in a quiet setting to really actively exercising and getting out and doing sports and all sorts of other activities outside. That's a wonderful story. And it's, it's absolutely true. Olmsted's Park was all about enjoying nature. And then there were some changes in the first couple of centuries of the, uh, for, pardon me, first couple of decades of the 20th century, where there was a focus on City Beautiful and and the creation of various monuments in the park. But yes, it was really Moses who brought the idea of playgrounds and enjoying the park uh, in terms of athletics um, to people's... In, in, uh, I have to rephrase that, I'm sorry. <laughs> it's really Moses who brought the opportunity to enjoy sports and enjoy the playgrounds to the park. So when I was coaching my son's West Side Soccer League team way back <laughs> in the day, right? Or when I'm riding my bicycle up that bike path alongside the river, I have Robert Moses to thank. Absolutely. <laughs> I never thought of that. I always thought of him as an automobile guy. I'm wondering, did the New Deal help in the in the in the rehabilitation of Riverside Park? Did he get New Deal money for that? He did. Uh, so it was difficult, of course, at the time when he was building this, which was 1934 to 1937, to fund anything because of the depression. Uh, but Moses, <laughs> through various means, uh, not all of them very straightforward, was actually able to get all of this funded. Um, and part of this was through, through the New Deal. So what happens to the park after the war, especially from the 1950s into the 1980s? Yeah, that is an excellent question. And that is when things started to go downhill, very unfortunately. Um, there, 
both Riverside Drive and Riverside Park kind of started to go downhill at the same time during that period. On the drive, uh, there was a, a, a relatively new law that uh, allowed apartments to be cut up. Um, the park itself was getting muddy all over again. There was garbage in Riverside Park. Um, urban renewal was going on. And unfortunately, some of the folks who were supposed to convert um, buildings or, or rather knock them down, uh, instead maintained them and didn't provide services. And so people wound up moving out and the city wound up filling the buildings with people who had criminal backgrounds or mental health problems and needed support services but didn't provide those support services. There were transit strikes and teacher strikes and lots of unemployment in the 70s and lots of homelessness and all of this affected the Upper West Side and Riverside Drive. In Riverside Park, there were a lot of homeless living in the tunnel. Uh, there was garbage being dumped in the park. There were uh, there was drug paraphernalia all over the park. And <laughs> once again, wonderful Riverside Park and Riverside Drive hit bottom, especially in the 70s uh, when crime impacted all of the city. Uh, there were murders in Riverside Park. Um, in 1970, there was a woman in her 70s. She was walking her two little dogs and she was murdered. Uh, the, uh, in my building, actually, uh, the before we moved in, the Super Sun was murdered in a holdup attempt just down the block. So all of this was going on in the 50s, 60s, 70s. Um, and it was not until the end of the 70s and the beginning of the 80s that everything turned around. What explains the turnaround? The neighbors, the people of the Upper West Side of Riverside Park basically said, that's it. <laughs> this is not happening anymore. I'm going to do something about this. So several things happened. Um on the one, uh, the neighbors and the politicians at the time, they got Riverside Park landmarked, which means that changes could not be done uh, without approval from the uh, uh, Landmarks Commission. But also, uh, the Riverside Park Fund was created, and this is very important in the uh, future of the park. Uh, 14 different buildings um, basically got together and raised money to help uh, support improvements in the park. Um, also, uh, the Parks Department um, became very active here, and they created a plan in 1984 to address the issues in the park and upgrade it. And they did that, and then they created another plan in 2016, which involved all sorts of changes from improving the paving of the walks and the steps to totally redoing the rotunda, uh, totally redoing the marina. And all of this is actually going on now. So um, the problems have been addressed. There has been more funding. Uh, in recent years, very recently, uh, the park has received over a half a billion dollars in funding toward its improvement. So the park and the drive with it have really gone up and down and up and down again over time. Um, but right now, the many issues that the park has had um, are being addressed. You know, one of the things that strikes me about the Upper West Side of Manhattan today is the variety of housing there. Luxury apartment buildings, public housing, row houses, tenements, and the neighborhoods 
own diverse ethnic and economic mix. In human terms, how does today's Riverside Drive fit into the Upper West Side? Well, it's a real mix in terms of the buildings, certainly. Um, And while many of the folks here now uh, are still that upper middle class that created the drive way back, there are also still a number of very small apartments. Um, The buildings that were cut up way back, some of them are still cut up. And so that's, uh, you know, not necessarily the upper middle class folks who are living there. Um, So it is, it is a mix. But for the most part, for the most part, it's still, um, the residents are still very much the kind of people who lived there when the park was initially created and the drive. In the second half of your book, you take readers on a tour of Riverside Park and Riverside Drive, starting in the West 70s and moving on up. And you talk about the seductive 70s, the happy hundreds and the rest. What are three of your favorite landmarks? Oh, three of my favorite. All right. Let's see where to begin here. I thought a limit of three would be constructed. <laughs> all right. Uh, I have so, so many. So I think we'll... we'll be on three if you want. Oh, oh well, all right. Um, I'm going to start with my favorite building on the drive, which is the Shinazi Residence. This is this stunner of a building. It's this glowing white French Renaissance marble confection. It's gorgeous. It looks pretty much the same way it did when it was built in 1909. It's special not only uh, because of the way it looks, but also because it is the only freestanding villa left, a privately owned freestanding villa left on the drive. Uh, it's The interior has this ornately carved wooden ceiling and glittery mosaics and marble. The outside has this fabulous tiled mansard roof and balustrades and it's it's gorgeous um pardon me oh it's on 107th street right there Mm -hmm. on the north corner northeastern Mm -hmm. corner um its history is interesting too it was first owned by or it was built for i should say a tobacco baron um it later became a a daycare and then um um, a co-ed residence for columbia university and then a columbia university professor owns it owned it and now it's owned by a vice chairman of goldman sachs So that's one of my favorites. Another uh, one that is very close to my heart is Uptown. It's about 123rd, 124th Street, and it is the Amiable Child Monument. And I absolutely adore this one. Uh, This is in memory of a little boy. His name was St. Clair Pollock. And many years ago in the 1700s, and remember, this is an area of cliffs, he fell from the cliffs to his death below. And he was buried uh, where he fell. And uh, either his father or his uncle, who owned the area, it's debatable whether he was father or uncle, at one point had to sell uh, the land and asked the new owner to please care for this grave, which is one of the two remaining graves, as I understand it, private individual graves in all of Manhattan. 
and the new owner did that. Um, and then in the 1870s, the land was bought for the park, but the grave is uh, remains untouched. It's a simple urn that marks it. It's just a few steps down from the drive. It is easy to pass. And what also makes this uh, remarkable, really, there's two things. One, on the anniversary of Little St. Clair's death, people often leave mementos, whether it's flowers or rocks or toys. And also what makes this special is that it is literally up the block um, from Grant's tomb. So you Mm -hmm. have this massive monument um, in honor of a famous man, a president, and just behind it, far less visible, but far more dear, I think, is this lovely monument to this young child. And lastly, I think, um, if we're talking about three favorites, there is the People's Garden, uh, also known as the 91st Street Garden in the park. It is charming. It has hundreds of different varieties of plants and flowers. It has butterflies. (laughs) It is so well tended and in spring, in summer, it is just a glorious place to be. And also, it is the site of where the last and most memorable scene of You've Got Mail was filmed. So it's special for a number of different reasons. Since you're on a roll, let me ask this. Are there any places in Riverside Park that need more attention, that deserve more attention, that could be upgraded in some way that would be useful? Well, there there are not uh, individual monuments, but the <laughs> the park needs work. There's always, in this sense, there's always been a problem with drainage. In the park, Uh, I mean, the minute there is a heavy rainfall, you have ponds in the park. You have ducks on the ponds in the park. It's to that extreme. Um, So this is something that I know the park is planning to tend to, um, but it is a real issue. and, And hopefully it's addressed sooner rather than later. Now, what's next for you in Riverside Park? Ah, <laughs> um, well, um, I think I've written all that uh, I can about Riverside Park. I'm sp- still spending a lot of time walking up and down the you know, Riverside Drive and in Riverside Park. I'm there all the time. It was a gift to me, certainly, through the, the most horrible days of COVID, uh, as it was to the rest of the neighborhood. Um, I do have a, another book in the works, but it does not have to, de- it does not deal with the park. Uh but- It's also about uh, wonderful sites in the city. It's also their history. It's also um, their look and feel and the people who go there. Uh, But this time, it's not just the Upper West Side. It's uh, actually all five boroughs of the city. Um, So that is how I'm spending more of my time these days. That's great. Well, I'm Rob Snyder, and I've been talking with Stephanie Azarone about her new book, Heaven on the Hudson, Mansions, Monuments, and Marvels of Riverside Park for the New Books Network and the Gotham Center for New York City History. Thank you, Stephanie. Thank you, Rob. My pleasure.